Hey everyone, it's Ryan here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Into the Wild. Before we get on to today's show, I just want to say we had a few technical difficulties with some of the recording. So you might hear a little bit of a buzz in the first 10 minutes, but keep with us. We fix it in the end. So just get through and the audio will become crisp and sweet. Hello, I'm Jack Perks, a wildlife cameraman, and in my spare time, I host the Bearded Tits podcast. Every Tuesday, I speak to scientists, celebrities, artists, and passionate people about the natural world. If you want a laid-back and easy-to-listen show, then tune in. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts, and I'll see you in the next episode. Cheers. Welcome to episode two of the new Into the Wild. Um, I hope you all enjoyed the first one. We had nice feedback from you all. We should say at this point as well, it's important to remember that if you enjoy listening to Into the Wild, um, you can visit ko-fi.com forward slash Into the Wild pod. If you'd like to buy Nadia an instant coffee or me a San Miguel, you can go on there and do that. Yeah, all the money that nice you give there goes back into the show. Yeah. Let's get on with episode two. We've got some nature news to share. We, I have. Yeah. I hope you have. Let's go in. Ladies and gentlemen, to a segment we simply call Nature News, where Nadia and I are going to share some nature news for you all. So let's go. Okay, Nadia, what you got for me? Can I go first? Um, yeah, go. This is like a... Okay, so actually, this was with Earth Day coming up next weekend. The 22nd of April is Earth Day. What are you doing to celebrate? Let us know, actually. That would be nice to see how you're marking it. Um, I thought it was just a nice bit of news that we've kind of reached this... Just an article on the BBC, actually, about mm. how... If, uh, like fossil fuels kind of uses peaking and like green energy production is kind of way surpassing it. So that, you know, let's just like greenwashing check here. The UK is still pushing forward with opening up new oil and gas. However, in terms of like our use of green energy is just going up and up. And so there's kind of like a, there's positive and negative here. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. But what is really good is that we, you know, we can prove that solar power, wind farms is working. It's efficient enough. Um, and for me, it was just one of those, because I can be quite cynical about this stuff sometimes, but actually it's just about green energy. Where it's like, well, you know, you're just like, oh, well, how long, how much does it cost to actually build a yeah. wind farm? And how long do you take to get your energy back? The fact is we have technology that can provide us energy and mm. we're, we're reaching that kind of flipping point where there is more, you know, there are so many like companies now where actually it's just purely renewable energy. Mm. Yeah, so it's the first ever annual drop in the use of coal, oil and gas to generate electricity. So wind Amazing. and solar now produce... Oh, pheasant. Was that <laughs> well, pheasant? You heard that, but a pheasant by a pheasant. Flew past my... <laughs> Nothing better yeah, than we are now 100% species. pheasant energy, um, which is a good job because uh, the aristocracy like to release 60 million yeah, of them every year. Fuck so for that, everyone. Burn them. Um, so, yeah, the use of renewable is growing and growing and growing. And so, but we could urge the UK government to stop opening new oil and gas and maybe mm. use finances to help other countries get off oil and gas and we could do things like that. But that's positive. But when I was looking for this news story just at the beginning of the podcast, I went on to BBC website to try and find it. But then I came <coughs> across this other news story, which I think, if not more important, which is that there is a... More important called... than renewable energy? Yeah. There is a border collie called Trini which is helping to kill clean litter while out on the walks in her local park. This five-year-old pet picks up rubbish she finds on the ground and deposits it in the nearest bin. 
Her owner, Alana Jackson from Clydebank, said she only needs a little bit of training and now it's game for the clever canines. So she's hoping Trini's example will encourage more people to keep their local area free from litter. Is this not a positive upon positive upon positive story that you've ever heard in all your life? I love Trini. The only thing Trini doesn't do, well, the only thing Trini is she, she picks up her poo, but she just tie it in a tree. Does she? Yeah. You see, this is where, this is poor this reporting is, from know. the BBC. They didn't give me the full story. <laughs> That's amazing. That's nice. And maybe I'll try that with Riley. She picks up tennis balls. She finds tennis balls like it's going out of fashion, mate. So, so I'm not a dog person, but I'm assuming if your dog picks something up mm. and you give it like a treat after it puts in the bin, it, it'll learn, right? If I put these in the bin, this is a positive thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, a very simplistic way of putting it, but you could it, it's not out of the realms of possibility to train that. Everyone could train that. I mean, we, we train pets to drop stuff that they pick up. So if they pick it up and you want it to keep it or bring it to you, you can train that as easy as you can train it to put it down. Okay. So if we, so I'm very positive about this. If we can train dogs to pick up litter and put it in bins, um, and actually this is going to cut training dogs and dogs being useful will come up in the podcast later. <laughs> so I'm not not. That's true. Around. That's so true. Thank yes. You. Yeah. This so, um, this episode is going to be a lot about dogs. <laughs> and and I think dogs get a lot of negative rap, and understandably because we don't have any kind of dog control or training. Mm. Um, and there is that kind of conflict with the environment. But actually, you know, if you've got a dog out on a walk and it picks up 30, 40 pieces of litter and dumps it in the bin. Trini, thank you for setting Trini. good examples. For Trailblazer Trini. Trini. Like yeah, it. Scottish dog as well. Scottish, of course it is. Um, <laughs> right, mm. okay. My, my nature news yours. is, um, well, mine's quite quick. I'm not going to linger on mine. It's just I saw it. It's a, it's a bit of positive uh, I did not put one T in that word. Did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> That was incredible. That was incredible. <laughs> this was about a weekend. You surprised yourself with yeah, your I, don't know. <laughs> I actually went like my knuckles went in like that. I was so cocky then. <laughs> that's because I've had a weekend with my family. That's oh, all that's that is. So um, news from Scomer Island. There's record number of puffins that have been recorded. Um, the first count of the year earlier this week uh, clocked 42,513 birds, which is the highest since the island counts began in the late 1980s. That's an absolute joy. So that's joyful. Oh. There's nothing more joyful than a puffin, really. Uh, yeah, there is. A puffling. <laughs> I'd put that under the category of a puffin. <laughs> That's beautiful news. Thank you very much for sharing that with me. That's made me happy, particularly with what happened, what's happening with bird flu. So that's great. Exactly, right. And with uh, sand eels and their diet and stuff like that, like we saw in Wild Isles, a lot of challenges puffins face. So it's nice to see their numbers are going up. Right, okay. This is my favourite bit. What? The, the end of nature news. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank fuck, no. that's done. <laughs> right, let's move on to Nature Room 101. Okay, Nature Room 101. Nada and I put the call out throughout March and April, we asked this, uh, for your least favourite type of weather. Uh, British people love moaning about the weather. They, it's their thing. No matter what it is, it's not quite good enough or it's too much one thing, too little. If it was an Olympic sport. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. So... We is up there with queuing. It's things that we in our culture love to do. So we thought it'd be fun to pick a weather round for Nature Room 101 and, and hear them. Miss- I picked two that I really enjoyed. What? What were you what? I just you don't like the tea and weather either. Like No. 
I think it's wastes time. Weather. I was actually, the Weather. whole time you were talking, I was trying to think of a word with lots of T's in it and going to get you to say it. And all I could think of was Snettisham. Snettisham. <laughs> don't know. It doesn't don't work. Let, keep, let me keep on that. If I come up with a T-heavy word, I'm going to I'll drop it. it later. Right. Come sweet. on then. What, what have we got? What have people, what have people right. got fed up with? Well, so, okay, it's, um, we had Megan Shursby, who is a naturalist and nature writer. Megan tweeted in saying that rain, but a specific type of rain Megan doesn't like. And I think I'm on, I know I'm with Megan on this. Rain where it's light enough that you feel like it's okay to go out, but it manages to seep through waterproof clothing to make everything and everyone wet and miserable. The other thing I will add is someone else said the exactly exact same thing. And this was um, conservationist Pete Cooper, who said he calls it mizzle. It's typical of the West Country, unlike the Northern Rain, which is physically aggressive, but at least it's proper. This <laughs> wets you more than you, you're capable of and plays physiological torture like a climatic Hannibal Lecter. I call bull. <laughs> you trust no one. No. You trust no I one with nature and 101. No, I do. I do. I just take, I take. So we had, so Megan. No, um, the other so guy. Pete, yeah, so Megan and Pete, have, have, he called so it Pete, mizzle, but the same Pete. thing. So it's that constant mist mizzle yeah, rain. That wasn't the bit I was having. I was taking exception to a certain bit of that, and that was this this perception that northern rain is aggressive. <laughs> okay. And I think there's some there's a, something deeper going on there. Okay. So I think we can redact the word aggressive. We'll take that out. Yeah, northerners aren't aggressive, and I what think about, that's what I think there was a link what about there. Northern rain is harder working. There you go. There we go. Turned it into a positive for you. Yeah, it's harder working rain in the north. Might be perceived aggressive by southerners. Cool. Okay. We'll leave that um, there. Okay, <laughs> I'm, happy that. That, I'm happy to put that in room 101. I, yeah, because I'm not a fan of misery. Right in. Nobody no, likes that kind of rain. I don't. Absolutely nobody likes it. I'm like, if you're going to rain, rain, yeah. don't give me this in between. No, I would I'm say this that. is a universal accepted hatred, this yeah. particular... Because if you want rain and it's mizzle, that's going to piss you off. And if you don't want rain and it's mizzle, it's going to piss you off. Like you don't win with mizzle. I'm trying to think of a scenario where I like it. Um, maybe if I was one of them plants that likes a misty atmosphere, but I'm not I'm a human. So The only time as a human that I like it is if I'm walking home and mizzle starts and that's all it is on my walk home. So I'm like, well, at least it was only mizzle if I'm out in it for like 10 minutes. Yeah, there you go. Either way, it's not a pet. It's either way, no one's singing in the rain in that rain. No. And also, like the song singing in the mizzle is just not going to kick off. It does sound like the dubstep. Get it in. Get it in. Get it in. Mizzle can go into room 101. Put it in. In you go. Okay, next one. Next one. Next one. I'm unsure about this one. This one's a room splitter, I think, from James Beaumont. I think that's how I say second name, James. But as we've all heard today, is that I'm a bit cockneyed up with my pronunciation, so I do apologise. Um, James tweeted, um, "Hail, horrible to play shinty in." I'm not sure what that means. What does that mean? <laughs> Who are our listeners? <laughs> what what is shinty? What's shinty? Hang on. Google that I'm while go you. Our, I'm just going to go to our researchers uh, in the studio. Can we just? <laughs> it sounds. Is it like croquet? It sounds like something sounds I like something like will that, never play. 
How weird. But anyway, James says, while you're Googling that, James says, it's horrible to play Shinsey and drives people away from my RSPB stand while I'm working. Least helpful weather in Pokemon. I assume he means Pokemon Go. Um, And if I'm lucky enough to be inside when it's a hailstorm hits, it's so loud on the roof and windows, I have to use my outside voice inside. Would you like me to tell you what Shinty is? What Shinty? Shinty is a team game played with sticks and a ball. Shinty is now playing mainly in Scottish Highlands and amongst Highland, this is Wikipedia, by the way, migrants to big cities of Scotland, but it was formerly more widespread in Scotland and was even played in Northern England to the second half of the 20th century. So as a migrant to Scotland... Um, rounders? <laughs> let me just tell you what, I'll just Google images it. I, I, I already like Shinty now. Okay. I like Shinty. I like its name. It's got a jaunty name. I feel like we're focusing on Shinty more than the weather that James. Yeah. Put in. Well, wouldn't you? With oh, so it kind of looks like hockey. Okay. So I, I've got a feeling that I've got a feeling that comparing Shinty to hockey is something that Scottish people don't like. I don't know. It's just no. a hunch. I feel like let's get off Shinty before we. Either way, um... so so the fact so okay, hail is incredible. Just like the magic of how hail is created and how seldom it happens. Mm. Little balls of of crystal falling from the sky. The fact that it interrupts a shinty game is unfortunate. <laughs> I can only see a possible, a positive, sorry, I think. But this guy's a RSPB recruiter. I've also done that job and it's an incredibly hard job talking to members of the public that don't want to talk to you. So mm. like much solidarity and love to you. But despite the love, I am... Not a chance putting hail in room 101. Not I, a chance. You can't take hail away from people. Why else, what else would you send pictures of people? Like, you know when you send pictures, going, have you seen the size of this hail? It's also, Everyone does it because it's magical. There's not many weather types that make you tell other people about it happening when it's happening. There you go. Do you know what I mean? There's only a few, like snows up there, hail, and a thunderstorm. I think that's those are the only there three you where They're you kind three. of go... Oh God, it's hailing! Like you have yeah. to tell someone and film it. For some and then reason. also give an approximate millimeter size of the ball. Yeah. And, and what someone, about hail? Someone that's always like, gets you hurt. do get hail the size of tennis balls as well. You see, that's the bit that I'm thinking. Maybe large hail. I wouldn't mind putting in. Well, just, that's, if you've got dangerous. your shinty sticks, you can just play just with them away. No, if anything, it's not interrupting. It's making the game more, you know, another level. <laughs> Which is the real ball? Nobody knows. <laughs> no, just, everyone's just swinging like a pinata. Like, <laughs> so his it. real problem is, is our hail isn't big enough. Of course, it isn't. Yes. We're a small island. God, I don't quite like hail. What I like running away from it. I like the fact that you smile at it while it's hurting you. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a bit so like paintballing, isn't it? It's one of those things where you're like, this is hurting, but it's like, isn't it funny? So yeah. Good, yeah. I can't I love hail. Hail. I If love anything, hail. this conversation has made me appreciate Hill. I've never really appreciated it more. I feel happier, but after talking about, or it could be the beer kicking in, or it's, <laughs> I don't know, but it, it might be, yeah. I, I'm not Hail put, can sorry, stay James, in the clouds and on your shit. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. Okay, let's do that. Right, those are our two. Let's close the vault on Nature Room 101. And we need to... <laughs> I just don't know why Oscar bothers with his own sound effects when we have Nadia Shake. Under I know if I do it strategically while you're still talking, you can't edit me out and he has to yeah, use it. I know you know that as well. <laughs> I know you know that. Um, okay, vaults closed. Let's move on to today's episode. Okay, on to today's or this month's episode. We're talking about one that's it's a 
such a big so i reckon we're going to do another episode on this as well i don't know about you do you think so it feels meaty it is it's a lot to get through we're going to do our best to talk about today's topic and cover as much ground as we can and we've got some lovely input from people around the world we are talking about human wildlife conflict which I think at some point, if you work in conservation, if you work in uh, with the natural world, it's a phrase, it's it's something that you will most definitely hear of at some point. But I think with human wildlife conflict, there's there's a certain view of what that is. And there's lots of conflicts, discussions going on in conservation that we don't see as human wildlife conflict, which in fact they are. So I think what we're looking to do in this episode is kind of really explore what it means um, what it means to us in the UK, in uh, the United States. But then we're going to go to some other countries as well and hear from people on the ground about what the, the realities are. We're living with wildlife much bigger than what we are used to in the UK and for some people in Europe and the US and other kind of uh, countries that have cultures similar to ours as well. So first of all, Nadia, I guess we better define what human wildlife conflict is. Yeah, let's do it. We spoke to a conservationist and someone that was on an episode of Into the World a couple of years ago called Gabby Fleuret, a wonderful conservationist. They work mainly in Southern Africa and in quite simple terms, told us a little bit about what human wildlife conflict is. Hi, my name is Gabby Fleury. I am a first year PhD student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and I work specifically on human-wildlife interaction research. And then underneath that, I tend to look at human-wildlife conflict issues. My project is in Botswana, where I'm looking at carnivore livestock conflict mitigation in collaboration with two on-the-ground NGOs. Human-wildlife conflict is essentially, at the end of the day, about the conflict of interest. Both wildlife and people need to be able to use available resources in order to survive, and this can sometimes bring them into conflict. And this conflict can result in wildlife posing a direct threat to livelihood, safety, and well-being of human beings. And this can include you know, such things as even mental health and opportunity costs, and often disproportionately impacts women. Uh, so it's a very serious issue, and it's not just a conservation issue, it's also you know, a human, human rights issue, um, human development issue, and it reaches deeply into all of these fields and these concerns. So as wildlife can pose this direct threat to people, retaliation can ensue. People can become upset with the animals um, and then retaliate and sometimes kill the animals or have other impacts on the ecosystem. And this can damage wildlife populations, uh, it can impact entire ecosystems. And human wildlife conflict is, is ancient, so it's always been around. People have lived with wildlife for centuries and millennia, and this is important to recognize, especially you know, as foreign researchers, that people who have been living with wildlife know how to live with wildlife better than the rest of us do, um, and often have techniques to be able to survive with this wildlife. So although human-wildlife conflict has been happening for pretty much as long as there's been humans and wildlife on the planet together, it has been increasing due to impacts such as increased human population growth, changing land use patterns, as well as factors such as climate change, um, which brings wildlife and humans into closer and closer proximity or reduces available resources and underlines this conflict. However, I do want to make the point that human wildlife conflict isn't just about, you know, for example, lions eating cattle. 
in Kenya um, or, you know, elephants eating, eating crops. It's also, you know, all kinds of taxa. So you can think of any taxa that you can think of. So large cats, bears, elephants, otters, sharks, crocodiles, even rabbits. The idea of, of rabbit eating someone's garden could be considered human-wildlife conflict, and it just refers to a negative human-wildlife interaction, so under that umbrella of human-wildlife interactions. And this is a huge issue because these situations are very complex, they're very dynamic, and they're very quick-changing, and it negatively impacts not only the wildlife populations but communities. It impacts conservationists and also governments, which are trying to you know, align their wildlife conservation work with sustainable development goals and trying to move that forward as well. So it really impacts everyone um, and is not just a conservation issue or environmental science issue. It's also about you know human well-being and the rights of humans to be able to live you know a productive, safe, and happy life as much as possible. So. It really is about trying to protect wildlife and help safeguard people's livelihoods and safety. And I think it's one of the most exciting fields ever because it incorporates so many different disciplines, looking at it from peace building or from animal behavior, and it, it never gets old. I mean, not only is it important, for the rest of the world. And in many species, it's one of the biggest impacts to their populations behind habitat destruction. But it really touches on so many different fields. And you know, for a practitioner, that's what more can you ask for? I really like that Gabby gives that oversight of defining it because we 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 quite often think of the human wildlife conflict of an animal directly uh, causing harm to someone's life or livelihood or vice versa to a person doing it. But it is more than that. It is, it so much is, and we'll go on to a minute uh, to another topic that um, Gabby wonderfully explains to us, which are the drivers behind human wildlife conflict. But the fact that these are so many animals that deal with this, and I think this is where we can really draw this closer to home in the UK as well, because it's easy for us to think, right, lions and crocodiles and elephants or bears but when we start to think about even things from insects and stuff yeah. and and like being around us in picnics and eradicating them, even in local parks going, well, we don't want them there anymore. That is human wildlife conflict. Yeah. And it is, it's, it's like, imagine, you know, the whole planet is full mm. of all of these things that have evolved together over millennia. But yeah, I mean, they put it so beautifully in terms of like just painting mm. this picture of like all animals and wildlife is constantly interacting and bumping into one another mm. in the, this big, you know, green and blue ball that we live on um and 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 there are rubs there are going to be rubs where when those two things bump into each other there is a more negative effect on one thing than the other and was i right hearing that they said otters when they were yes i i would imagine the species Gabby referred to with otters or was meaning is Asian short-clawed otters because I know Asian short-clawed otters oh, spend a lot of time okay, in yeah. around rice paddies and yeah, okay. uh, tea plantations so I'd imagine those I mean I'm sure other otters may cause issues with um local fishermen or something like that M- fishermen just stop fishing because they're so they're cute. so adorable and they're just like <laughs> but this is strange though isn't it because this is what I mean it's it's so possible for us to see an animal as one thing and for someone else to see it as something else yeah it's absolutely. so 
easy for us to detach ourselves away from that. And I think we do that across all animals, you know, like with the way I see an elephant is very different to the way it's someone that lives next Absolutely. door. Absolutely. I mean, take it to the UK, the way some people see grey squirrels compared to other people, yeah, the yeah. difference is vast here yeah. just in the UK. And, and then another another one that popped into my head was with wild boar. Mm. Um you know, conservationists and people who are interested in wildlife in that way just are absolutely like celebrating this comeback of this animal, yeah. which is creating these incredible micro habitats in the new forest and in other places. But then there are people that live around the new forest whose gardens have just been absolutely <laughs> destroyed, destroyed by a Have you seen it? You've I've seen, seen, I've seen the pictures. Yeah. Um, more so it's in pretty Europe bad. Than I have in, in the UK. Yeah. I was it, really it can surprised be. It. it can be. And you would be <laughs> if it happened to you. This is the thing. Like, it's got to. I think with human wildlife conflict, there's a, a constant thing where you have to look inward with this going, yeah. I can't sit there and judge what, how other people are retaliating, reacting or responding even verbally to this kind of situation. How would I respond if my garden that I put X amount of money and work into was completely trashed? But it, I, I don't know. I, I can't, I can't see you, out. Ryan, ever being the kind of garden, correct me if I'm wrong, that I would will. spend a Sunday perhaps pruning a privet <laughs> no but i would i would spend a sunday you know planting a petunia <laughs> no but i would i would i would put time and effort into things i do deadhead my cowslips which i'm now going to get on a t-shirt I, I deadhead my cowslips yeah it produces more flowers Get it on a t-shirt. Get it on a t-shirt. Listeners, you're um, welcome. I guess the thing that comes up for me thinking about this is just like, you know, we we have these, let's talk about the output here and maybe we'll come mm. into this. We'll probably, let's get back into this in a bit, but just as it's in my mind, the the output is how a human behaves towards the animal. So, yeah, yeah. so we're talking about this from a conservation point of view. This is where we're coming at this from ultimately is hmm. what does human wildlife conflict ultimately mean for the populations of wildlife that we're worried about? And so the output is how a human behaves towards an animal, how it defends itself against the, the wildlife you think, or, and, and ultimately like you can sit and judge all you want. But ultimately, the re the reality is humans live in a world with wildlife and how that human feels when they meet that conflict and then reacts is the thing that we need to do something about. So you can sit here and go, well, that's wrong. You can say wrong until you're dead, but it doesn't, you know, while we're sat over here on the other side of the planet, you can sit and go, oh, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. But it's happening. So we ought to maybe think about what's going on deeper and how do we do something about it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah, I really, and, and even like, even if we don't go abroad with this, even like, you know, if we look at farmers and badgers in the UK, and that's something that I say when I, I look over my shoulder as I say it, because it's such a divisive um, topic mm. for complete understandable reasons on both sides. And I think we, like you said, it's happening. Yeah. Something is happening. And people within that kind of whole discussion need to be heard there mm -hmm. they need to you know if, if you block someone out you just that conflict and i don't think gabby has said it yet i think we're going to get to something let's take a listen later. to the so, next voice then. yeah because the, gabby touches on something that so we're talking about drivers of human wildlife conflict because it's very very easy to assume that 
it's the incident that is the conflict, but it is always deeper and there's always, always way more context to that. So here's Gavi telling us a bit more about the, the, some drivers within global human wildlife conflict. Okay, so I'm going to say something that every single conservationist says when they talk about human wildlife conflict, in that when you're thinking about driving factors, you know, why does human wildlife conflict happen? It's extremely context dependent. It's down to the community, to the individual level even, about, you know, why this happens. You know, we can talk about kind of the basicness of it in terms of the dispute. So the idea that, you know, say a lion eats someone's calf and that person loses their calf, that would be, for example, a dispute. So that's like the initial inciting incident. That's the thing that we can all look at and say, ah, yes, this is human wildlife conflict. However, that's not the entirety of the story. So underneath human wildlife conflict, underneath that initial very clear, ah, this is an instance of human wildlife conflict are deeper things context. So maybe this person, this is their last calf. They're going to respond very differently. Or maybe they're from a community that not only values livestock as livestock, but they value them as social status. They might respond very differently. Or maybe, you know, they have different backgrounds to another individual who may respond differently. So there's a lot of things underpinning this. And you also have to think about, you know, what are their relationships with wildlife and how does that tie into them? How are wildlife seeing their culture um, how have they historically lived with and dealt with wildlife? You know, what are some of the impacts in terms of identity with that? And how do they perceive different wildlife species? So some people in different communities might dislike wildlife, different species of wildlife more than others, even though, you know, one species of wildlife may be less of an issue. They might still dislike them more and be more likely to retaliate against them because of cultural reasons or because of even political reasons. So underneath that initial dispute, it really isn't about human-wildlife conflict at all, but really more human-human conflict. It's about how identity and how past experience shape people's perception of animals, perceptions of wildlife, and how that you know impacts how they are going to respond to something like a conflict event, or respond to something like a loss from, for example, from a carnivore. So I think... That's kind of the tricky thing, because when you're trying to mitigate human wildlife conflict, you have to think of what are some of the perceptions, what are some of the fears, what are some of the past experiences and other social tensions that could potentially complicate mitigation methods. So it, it really is more about just the species human interactions that you see in front of you and about these underlying, you know, beneath the tip of the iceberg that you can see, there's like these deeper underlying drivers behind human wildlife conflict and behind the responses that you see. And to be a good practitioner, you need to be able to dig in and really understand what those things are to be able to effectively move forward. And this is why a lot of really good mitigation methods come from the community themselves, because they completely can understand that deep and often social political context behind human wildlife conflict. Human on human conflict, I think, is the point there. Such a good point. That really... I love this person. Just put really beautifully that that idea yeah. of it's human to human conflict. Yeah. Ultimately, ultimately, you know, we don't have a world populated by everybody that 
just sees nature as this thing that must be protected in the way that we do it. Yeah. We are shaped by our culture and communities, the stories that we've been told and the pressures that are put on us and whether that is spiritual, cultural or emotional, mm. whatever kind of social pressures that we have that seems to play deeply into human wildlife conflict. So it's about it's about our existence as, as people that can stand back and look at wildlife and make a judgment in so many ways. And I think we, we we this isn't always dependent on species status. I think this is the other thing we get hooked on when we look at conflicts. Like you know, if you've got a lion, for example, that you know the majority of which are near threatened or endangered, and and we we think you know these conflicts are more severe. But then actually, like Gabby said, like the way the community or the culture looks upon an animal as well. If we look at rats in the UK. You know, rats aren't anywhere near endangered, but we have huge conflicts with rats. We exterminate them because we don't like them in and around us. And we have this really deep kind of feel about rats from an unhygienic and kind of disease spreading point of view. So there's you've got a conflict there. These conflicts aren't um unique to large endangered animals. But, you know but, I mean? but quite rightly, they are mm. the poster child of yes, this issue, yeah, yeah, as yeah. they are also the poster child of the positive stuff about nature when people you ask yeah. kids what wildlife they like and they're like lions like you know these big megafauna because we yeah, live in a right. society of hierarchy yeah absolutely on from how communities see an animal i think leads us nicely on reflecting back to the uk though with because a lot of our conflicts here's a statement i'm so f- nervous about talking about human wildlife conflict for the uk i'm so nervous. i'm not what I just because you know what, there's so many people got opinion. <laughs> yeah, but this is the thing. This is a human problem. I know. Everybody's got an I opinion. Everybody's got an opinion, and that's why if you're ever going to solve the problem, we have to start listening to people with opinions. Mm-hmm. If those people are the ones that are like ringing the necks and stuff. Okay, here's what I was going to say: is that a lot of human wildlife conflict in the UK is metaphorical. It's not actually taking place. We have lost a lot of our wildlife that we would have here. And there are lots of talks of how to bring these animals back. Some are happening, some are likely not going to happen in my lifetime. But it's this conversation we're having, which is human-wildlife conflict, like Gabby said, the human-on-human, which is preventing, maybe at times, rightly or wrongly, certain species coming back. And we talk about this fear of having this animal around and it could be a wolf it could be a lynx you know and it's i think a lot of the time especially in a country like the uk where the majority of land is agriculture it's predator fear yeah um and stuff like that so i'm burping from my <laughs> oh god don't apologize this is I'm a nature so podcast not like a smell for the element on into the wild although sometimes oh. i wish there was but now i've <laughs> mentally remembered the smell and it's in my nostrils <laughs> so i think like when we like looking at human wildlife conflict in urban areas again let's bring this back to our lives let's bring this back to kind of what is going on around us and i i asked gabby to tell us a bit about human wildlife conflicts in the states what that what does that look like because culturally we are quite similar we're very similar to life in the in the united states wildlife is slightly different but the way we live is uh, quite similar so here is gabby telling us a little bit about Human wildlife conflict in the United States. And there's a particular animal that Gabby brings up that I want your ears to pick up on because I think we're having exactly the same conversations here in the UK. 
So I will be honest, um, I spent most of my working career so far in Southern Africa, so my knowledge of the States comparatively is, is less. But I do know that in the States, some of the biggest issues of human wildlife conflict have to do with changing carnivore populations, for example, or reintroduction of different species into certain areas. Um, I'm thinking about you know reintroduction of wolves, for example, which can be very political, um, as well as, you know, impacts of wildlife and changes of wildlife behavior due to urbanization. So thinking about, for example, foxes and coyotes living in cities and how that can sometimes drive human wildlife conflict. So, so those are kind of the biggies. Um, in many areas in the States, there are places that, you know, historically wolves have been extirpated and are now returning back or their populations are growing. And it's this huge question of, you know, do we support that? Um, you know, some people are very pro-wolf and very interested in having wolves on the landscape. And some people, for example, if they're ranchers, are very not interested in having wolves on the landscape and very concerned about the potential impact to their livelihoods, especially, you know, when conservation efforts are actually successful and you either see, you know, maybe you're seeing dispersal of wolves from Canada, dispersal from a neighboring state, or your populations are just rising. And then it's a question of how do you manage these populations? Do you allow controlled hunts? Do you allow people to take a certain amount of wolves per year to try to control the population? What is the right population to have? You know, does that take into consideration not just individuals, but packs for a healthy population? So a lot of that is very complex. And in terms of political nature of this, you know, if, if wolves are being introduced or if the government is having kind of a heavy hand in how to handle wolves, it can become very politicized in the sense that the wolf might be seen as, quote unquote, the government's animal. So this animal that the government is imposing upon, you know, a subsection of the population. For example, if you're a rancher and you're concerned about your sheep, and you find out that the government is now reintroducing wolves into your area, or you find out that wolf populations have been growing because of conservation in, you know, through government office in your state, then, you know, you might be very, very anti-wolf and feel like it's an imposition upon your rights and your rights to protect your livestock. Especially if the government says, oh no, you're not allowed to shoot them. <laughs> I think it can be quite complex. And I think that's kind of the biggest the biggest issues we're seeing. And in terms of urbanization, you know, because of how urban environments are and how difficult it is for animals to survive in them, the ones that tend to survive are very adaptable and are able to live, you know, within the fringes. Like I mentioned, foxes and coyotes would be a good example of that. So sometimes human wildlife conflict can be, you know, due to things like disease ecology. So there was an instance a couple years ago of a rabid fox biting a bunch of people on um, Capitol Hill, you know, in D.C. So that kind of brought this idea that, you know, zoonotic disease is potentially a threat or, you know, potential vehicular strikes or sometimes coyotes might take someone's small dog out of a yard. So there can be danger to pets and things like that. So I think Human wildlife interactions happen not just in kind of what we think of as far away locales, but they can happen very, very close to home and they impact all of us. And a good example of a nearby human wildlife conflict where I am that has nothing to do with something like a carnivore is white-tailed deer. I mean, I can't tell you that now I go to the University of Wisconsin-Madison and when I'm on a late night drive with friends, 
how many times we almost hit the deer and that can you know literally kill somebody so i do think it it needs to kind of there needs to be a shift in thinking of human wildlife interactions it's just something that we live with even if we live in urban environments we're still living with wildlife no matter where we're living um, there is always wildlife around and there's always interactions positive negative and neutral for both parties so i think it's really important to to have that framing I really yeah, amazing. Focus, yeah, I, I really want to focus on that human rights aspect of what Gabby was saying there as well, because it is that fear. I think we all fear at some point. <laughs> Correct me if you're if I'm wrong. Give me, give me your fears. Give my fears. Is that the government aren't looking out for my best intentions? I think we all have that, right? We have that feeling where I don't feel completely happy. And I think, imagine if you're living and you you rely on, in any country, you rely on the land around you, the, the livestock you have, and then someone far away says, we are looking to increase or put back this animal that could be a problem to you, um, or maybe culturally has been told to you as a problem in the past. And then you find out that you have absolutely no ways to control that yourself. And these people you may that are deciding this may never be around. You may never see these people. It may be very hard to contact them, like trying to get in touch with someone at Apple. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's gonna cause you to feel like you're not important or respected or valued in your country. And, and this is a reality, right? Like I yeah. think this is the important thing to. I think we often live in the abstract when it comes mm. to nature conservation. Yeah. We live in this abstract place of binary right and wrong. It is good to have animal. It is bad for human to not like animal. Yeah. And that, and if we just keep saying it over and over again, eventually we'll win somehow. But the yeah. reality is, mm. is that, you know, Bob, who lives in deep Kansas or wherever, mm has lived potentially on that land for generations, has a really deep and beautiful spiritual connection to it and feels like he has agency over that ranch. And, you know, in his, you know, we're not supposed to have global worldviews. Like we are creatures of small place and community and direct ecology within our ecosystem. It's only a modern thing that we're aware of the rest of the world globally. But Bob and his ancestors were probably just aware of their ranch and, and, mm. and living off the land locally and could control, you know, whether it's coyotes to keep off the hens and and probably it through generations always did coyote management, but every year the coyotes came back. So their, their feeling was that coyotes were doing fine, but they yeah, had to do yeah. something potentially to keep them away. And so to, to have that kind of external taking away of agency is absolutely going to make somebody... It is absolutely political. Of course, it's political. And sometimes we re- we remove, we decide on our high horse to remove agency from people based on a higher morality of all nature should be protected no matter mm. what. So the reality of, of politics is is huge. And I think I think there is, I mean, that feeling, whether you felt it or not, I think to everyone listening, just consider this feeling of having your human right kind of or your value taken away or not yeah. respected. It's got to be one of the lowest things as a citizen in a country you could ever feel yeah um and and the reality is people do feel feel that daily and and i think i think adam hart on an episode once professor adam hart put it very good when we're looking at species reintroduction in the uk is that it's not as simple as just waving a checkbook at people you can't just do that you can't just throw money at it as a we'll just pay you off because that's just not how that's not a system right it's not, it's not a system it's not it's no, not it's deep not, ecology it's not looking at the actual 
the issue at hand. It's not. It's yeah. just paying people off, and it's just it's just not the way it does. It's um, like Donald Trump paying off that woman that he's had still, sex with. Yes, yes. It no, you is can't just pay exactly it off. It's, it's weird. Like it's ugly that. head. It's weird. It's ugly head, hasn't it? <laughs> Out of all the things that's happened in the last five to six years, that wasn't one I thought was going to come up on today's show. I was just bringing up some alternative, relative, up-to-date news. Yeah, no, it, absolutely. And please continue to do that. Thank you. <laughs> no, it's really interesting and um, really huge thanks to Gabby for, for painting yeah, such a massive thanks, Gabby. picture of what human-wildlife conflict is and bringing in some real examples and... I guess helping us take away from the abstract of right mm-hmm. and wrong and actually placing us in the reality of if we're going to talk about conservation as something we have to do because we've f***ed yeah. up, um, you know, the solutions are also have to involve humans, which did f***ing up in the first place. I've got to also um, say... We can't and, abstractly think about it as... Can I also just say, wonderfully put by Gabby as well, in all their voice notes, as a science communicator, so well explained. Yeah. Just bossed saying, it. bossed it, absolutely <laughs> met the brief. <laughs> let's bring in some more people. So yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. This week, Ryan. So I checked in with a good friend of mine that I met on my second trip in Namibia, Neville Hendricks, who is the, um, I don't think he's anymore, actually. He was, when I met him, the conservancy manager at Nangu Conservancy in Namibia, which is about three hours drive from the west coast of Swakopmund. Um, and it is a beautiful, it's right near a coppice of rocks called uh, Spitzkopper, which is beautiful and a very flat surrounding. It's this random pile of rocks where you get leopards and jackals and stuff, and it's lovely. But Neville, all his life, has also been a subsistence farmer which means farming for his own use. And I wanted to check in with Neville because he was telling me lots when I was with him um, walking around his community of conflicts that farmers often have. And I thought this was a lovely opportunity to hear directly from a farmer Nothing to do with an organisation. He might touch on the community-based organisations in Namibia, but he's talking from the heart of a farmer here about the realities of living around animals such as leopards and jackals, looking after your livestock and how farmers feel. So here is Neville Hendricks. Neville! I am a 32-year-old young farmer in Namibia. I've been farming since I was in diapers. My granny actually introduced me to farming at a young and tender age, so farming has been in my blood since I was young, which is why I decided to continue with it, because it is a passion of mine. And the losses that I've incurred since I was in diapers until today, I would have been able to fly to space with Elon Musk today, I think. Baby sounds a little bit funny, but in all honesty, uh, the losses are severe. It is a lot. What... It's a source of livelihood that I'm actually losing every time a goat gets bitten. I have lost a lot of goats, cattle, donkeys, chickens. I've lost a lot of livestock to farming in my in my days. And what you feel is a lot. It's almost, if you talk about it in urban terms... It's like someone taking a chunk out of your salary, your monthly salary. Let's just say the 10% that you must actually give to church. It's a little bit more than that. It's way more than that. Sometimes you lose all of your salary, the whole salary, because you you still have to pay your workers. But then, but then the losses are on you. And there is no other way other than the conservancy model for a little bit of con compensation 
towards me and all the farmers of Namibia. We have come up with ways in order to help ourselves because help is not coming from anywhere else. Um, the government cannot help every farmer. All of our community-based organizations will not be able to assist everyone. And the compensation that we get from conservancies, although it helps, is also minimal and it does not really compensate you for the full carcass of whatever gets bitten. So we have also come up with ways to keep these animals away from us, to prevent these animals from biting our livestock. These are things such as making noise, uh, beating uh, sticks to drums, sticks uh, on drums, just to make a loud noise whenever you hear the cries of wild animals and when the dogs start barking. Oh, and another one is also dogs. Having a lot of dogs in your area also keeps wildlife away, like uh, predators, because uh, they don't like noise, they don't like a nuisance, they like to, to kill while it's quiet. And uh, making a huge fire, also the smoke um, deters these animals away. When you have problems with elephants, you can have type of reflecting material on your, on your wall or on your fence so that this causes a nuisance for the elephant's eyes because it blinks a lot when the sun hits on it, so then they keep away. You try to live on hilly areas just to avoid uh, being near wildlife and not living in valleys so that you become accessible to wildlife, human wildlife conflict or to these predators also. So there are ways that we are doing, but these ways are not helping because over the years, this has still been on the increase. Human wildlife has still been on the increase. I am still of the opinion that the conservation model would, would with a little bit of more support, would actually be able to assist farmers better when it comes to human wildlife conflict. Because it has been decades, even centuries, that we have been using these traditional methods to keep the animals away. But human wildlife conflict is still on the increase. So think about it a little bit. We can actually do something better by improving the model, the existing model, instead of taking it away and going back to primitive times again. Because these people will start to shoot these animals because they, they cause losses towards their livelihoods. It's very important. It's a livelihood. It's someone's bread and butter that we're talking about. It's, it's not a joke. I absolutely adore Neville. He's one of a uh, very close friend now. <laughs> I I don't want him to go to space with Elon Musk though. <laughs> I don't think he'd come back. Something that had struck me so much with Neville when I met him was his, and he laughed about it with me as well, was his optimism. He was so <laughs> optimistic all the time. And he he, get, he gets sense of that optimism. Yeah, he said that to me, saying, like, with all the losses I've had through wildlife conflict, I could afford a mansion in Beverly Hills. That's what he told me. And it's so difficult, I think, to... I mean, it's, I mean, it's not difficult. I think I'm doing it in my head now. I'm trying to relate to this mm. idea that if I, every time I check my bank account, I was like, God, another yeah. £100 gone, or another 50 quid's gone, or another... You know, and just start feeling like actually desperate because my mortgage is coming out in a few days mm -hmm. and I'm going to have to do something. And when I go to the co-op, I might steal that jar of tofu because no one's watching. Also, yeah. tofu doesn't come in jars. No, it can do. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, is... I did. It was, it was, you know, really beautifully explained and it just comes in so many different forms. But, you know, some actually like quite enjoyable, simple techniques in terms of like making loud noises. But, you know, there's so much labor involved in that. The mm. constant vigilance is a lot of labor.
I think what with what was interesting is when, when you hear um Neville put it in those kind of layman terms of like, you know, it's, it's like your bank balance being reduced or about a percentage being taken away. <clears throat> um, and that labor going into preventing wildlife from taking what is so uh, valuable to you. The other thing to kind of hold with that is the landscape that, for example, where Neville is, what that actually looks like. You know, this is not a landscape where, and I know this seems obvious to say, maybe it's not, but this is not a landscape where the nearest town for new opportunities is 20 minute drive down the road. Yeah, right. Th- just, these put, are just get your CV rural. in. Yeah, yeah. This is not it's, this is not a Western culture. This is a community in a semi-desert living around a coppice of rocks where the support around each other, just just being a, around that area and seeing it, you can really feel that importance of what people's livelihoods are. And I think I think it's really important to hold those kind of thought. These people, like Neville lives in a very challenging area at the best of times, and he still sends me photos of, of fires that are happening and, and with the climate crisis, and we, and we talk about it a lot. And I think it's very important to hold those kind of thoughts when we're talking about human wildlife conflict and impacts on livelihoods as well. I think it's at this point, I'd really like to bring in something that happened on social media over the last two weeks, because I think it's really important. Um, I think it's crucially yeah. important, if if you don't mind me doing this. No I cannot possibly imagine what it will feel like to be in Neville's position to wake up every day and see another chicken gone yeah. and just the gut-wrenching. We as humans um, are deeply relational, emotional, complex mm. animals of this planet. And we do things like we we get to breaking point. Mm. We get to breaking point and we are not, we without filling our cup, without love and support and a sense of security in the ground beneath our feet, we can lose our way, we can get angry, we can snap. That can go further and further and further. And having a frustration and a sadness towards, you know, we look for blame. We always look for an understanding or blame. And if your bank account is being reduced every time you look at it for no reason, you will you will look for blame. And if your livestock and your livelihood is being taken away and taken away and taken away, you you do look for blame. So so the utmost grace and respect for all humans going through that. And I can't actually imagine what that would yeah. feel like directly. And I and I have I have instant empathy and understanding despite loving the natural world as much as I do and wanting wanting us to turn this around so it's not declining anymore this is my life's work this is what I care about um and the way that we from a western perspective dismiss the value and importance of each individual who faces human wildlife conflict is something that should bring us a sense of shame. I think it is a point for us now to have a deep reflection, a profound moment of stopping and asking ourselves what it is we think about humans in our relationship to wildlife. On Twitter this week, there was a debate and a conversation around humans in proximity to wildlife and how indigenous cultures who are still practicing long ancient traditions in terms of harvesting and having reciprocity with the wildlife around them, being dismissed and having all of their culture dismissed in the name of conservation without understanding at all that community when the pressures that are exacerbated are because of Western culture and consumption driving 
populations of wildlife because of habitat loss closer to communities or wildlife numbers being reduced dramatically so that when indigenous populations do continue the the taking just what they need not more than they need practice that they've mm-hmm. always done end up being the thing that we can blame because because in the western culture we have the society of misanthropy which basically means the hating of humans if i hear another conservationist tell me oh well it'll be all right we just when all the humans go then wildlife will be okay <laughs> if that's your view take some time and some deep reflection mm-hmm. go sit in the corner because humans are beautiful incredibly creatively yeah. rich gorgeous loving animals of this planet who who we all the fact is we all everyone listening will love a human and so we see the value in them there is a western dismissal of an instant dismissal without a shred of reflection without engaging any part of your brain or any part of your empathy it's easy to say that communities that live near wildlife that kill it need to pull their socks up and they're the problem and quite frankly i'm going to pull the r card it is racism it's absolutely racism and there are plenty of big name conservationists who have big voices on twitter who will casually call out humans as a problem because a because an animal is endangered all of a sudden humans don't matter and i think we can agree on this podcast into the wild we take a more holistic and a more beautiful and actually the reality check of what conservation is in the context of our western culture and what needs to be done in the wider world to save wildlife and I don't want to put words in your mouth Ryan but I think you know we don't have this nuanced deep reflective approach to nature conservation and conflict and human wildlife conflict as it's it doesn't feel mainstream enough yet what feels mainstream and accepted are some atrociously racist comments mm-hmm. and problematic comments that come out time and time again and because it's like oh yeah we need to save polar bears polar bears are so lovely it's so easy to forget what we're actually seeing in those moments which is Indigenous cultures that live alongside polar bears can get to- Yeah. Can you imagine if I just said I completely disagree? Oh my God, that would be so awkward because that was a rant-a-thon. <laughs> can you imagine? Going, eh, I'm on the fence. Um, <laughs> no, I applaud every uh, every single word because in this social media discussion we saw, I, and it wasn't even subtle. I think sometimes we talk about subtle racism in these kind of conversations. To me, I didn't see it as subtle at all. I saw people saying that polar bears were more important than Inuit communities. I saw people blaming indigenous communities in Zimbabwe for the reason that there's conflicts with elephants. I just, I saw such a lack of empathy for your fellow human that it just, it it actually took me a step to stand back and say, that's upset me. And that could be for a number of reasons. I'm not used to saying that, but it did, it's all it was, was upset me that there's people out there that do not respect fellow humans in the world. And are not willing to understand that people see things and experience things different than us. And quite often those experiences are because of a lack of privilege that we have. It's very easy for us to sit on social media and say, you know, elephants are a beautiful, wonderful animal, and then go back to watching Love is Blind series four on Netflix. You know, it's Yeah, very- and ultimately privilege is a problem when somebody with privilege can't see something is a problem for somebody else. Yeah. And actually like... You know, th- this is people not seeing that human wildlife conflict Absolutely. is a problem for Absolutely. somebody else, and they're doing something. But because you're like, well, it's not my problem. It's yeah. like, 
And to blame, right. I'm sorry, just, All right, just, and to blame, just to blame, like we're not looking for a blame. This is not black and white, like this is the problem, it's that's the fault. Yeah, we we're don't looking have to at look a scenario. Blame. Exactly that, like we Gabby have to go, said, what's the scenario? Yeah. What, what could be the solution? What's the context? What's the layers here? Like, No, I think, I, no, I don't want a solution. I think I'm just going to be angry about it and tweet about it instead. That's okay. But also, I just imagine, imagine living in a world, let's play a game, let's get, let's play a thought <laughs> process game. Sorry to make you laugh mid-swig. Sorry. Um, Let's play a game where imagine if in the UK we weren't allowed to export conservationists across the globe. Let's say we weren't allowed to interfere with any other country. Let's say tomorrow there was a ban. Everybody has to stay here and work here. And now as we're sat here on our island and we're worrying about polar bear decline and we're worrying about, I was just about to say woolly mammoth. I think I that mean, ship's still. Barely a day goes by where I don't worry about a woolly mouth. <laughs> I think it's critical. I think it's next to critical. Um, um, so, so what we might do, what we might do if we had to look inward, mm. we might start looking at how do we stop causing the problems that cause yep. the pressures elsewhere on the globe, and maybe. That might be what we need to reflect on our own privileges and our mm. own way of living, potentially. Maybe. And maybe, maybe, maybe ask yourself the question. And everyone, I'm asking Nadia this as well as everyone listening and everyone on social media with 70,000 plus followers. Ask yourself the question. Maybe you don't know the answer. Wind what? your neck in and listen to some people. Because until you've actually lived around the thing that you're talking about, Shut the f*** up and go for a walk in the countryside. That's my I think we're getting... Are we being mean We're being a bit... No, it's true, though. Shut the f*** up. Like, if you were to say to somebody who lived in Alaska... Yeah. Like, oh, you've no idea the midges in Scotland. They really don't know the idea of the midges in Scotland. They kind of can't do it until they've... I'm just guessing there's no midges in Alaska... Correct me if I'm wrong. Don't know. Don't live there. We'll get letters. It's fine. Maybe, maybe you don't need a, another woolly mammoth throw cushion. Hey, sorry to interrupt the episode, Nature Nerds. It's Ryan, your host here. I just want to give you a quick shout out about something. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, accessible for everyone. However, running it is not free. If you would like to support Into the Wild and say thanks, then you can do so by visiting ko-fi.com forward slash Into the Wild pod. The link is in the write-up of this episode. By doing this and buying us a coffee, you are helping the future of Into the Wild. Thanks very much and back onto the show. Okay, so lastly on the show, um, there's one more uh, one more voice we'd like to share with you, and that is Dr. Jane Horgan. Um, Jane is here. Um, well, Jane can introduce herself. Go for it, Jane. My name is Jane Horgan. I'm the Grants and Communications Coordinator for Cheetah Conservation Botswana. I'm from Brisbane in Australia, which is where I'm currently living. Though Cheetah Conservation Botswana is based in the Hansi district in the west of Botswana. And I was living there for 12 years until 2021 when I moved back to Brisbane during COVID. Um, Jane works, as she said, in Botswana. And what we want to share is going back to Nadia's bit of positive nature news with dogs and even <laughs> Neville that mentioned dogs as a way of mitigation for wildlife. Here's Jane to tell us a little bit about how livestock garden dogs has been used in Botswana. 
Where we're based in the Hunsi district, there is a whole range of large carnivores that we work with, not just cheetah conflict uh, that we are dealing with, but also conflicts with leopards, lions, African wild dogs, uh, caracals, and jackals. Basically any carnivore that is uh, predating on, on livestock. Uh, so that area in Botswana is dominated by livestock farming, mostly cattle farming, but there's also farming of uh, goats and sheep. And so the lar largest amount of conflict is really uh, based around the threat or the predation of livestock by large carnivores. So farmers will have uh, cattle or goats or sheep taken by carnivores, and then they retaliate by killing those carnivores, either by shooting, poisoning, uh, trapping, uh, gin trap snares and things like that. So our job at Cheetah Conservation Botswana is to support farmers uh, that are living in that area to try to promote conservation through promoting the coexistence of farmers and carnivores. Because the carnivores are moving all through that area. Um, it borders the Central Kalahari Game Reserve to the west of the reserve. Uh, so you do get a lot of carnivores just moving straight through the farmlands. So ideally, we could be able to put in place measures where the farmers can protect their livestock so that the carnivores can move through the farmlands uh, while just surviving off predating on the wild uh, ungulate population that's in the area. There's a lot of kudus, uh, diker and steenbok, small antelope that the carnivores can take. Uh, and so if you can protect your livestock, then you can, you can coexist with the carnivores in that area. Cheetah Conservation Botswana is all about promoting the coexistence of wildlife, carnivores and farmers and communities in the Western Kalahari. And what makes me really happy is to see how willing the farmers are to live with carnivores on their land and to try to coexist with these animals because it's, it's really not easy when you your livestock is your livelihood your entire livelihood and then you see a cheetah walking past i mean it's understandable that that would make a farmer very nervous but what's wonderful to see and what really makes me excited about the prospect of ongoing coexistence there is is how willing they have taken up our suggestions and the deterrent devices that we promote like livestock guarding dogs. When we started out in 2003, we surveyed farmers and about 5% of small stock farmers, goat and sheep farmers, were using livestock guarding dogs. Just last year, we did a similar survey and found out that that number is up to 40%. So these dogs, we've placed over 200 dogs ourselves, but the concept of using these dogs has spread like wildfire through the community and people are taking them up because they're cost effective, they're incredibly efficient at protecting livestock. 85% of the farmers that we've placed dogs with now lose zero livestock to carnivores. Their work just speaks for themselves. They're incredibly efficient and just such an easy way to be able to promote the coexistence of farmers and large carnivores in the Kalahari. Yeah, so how cool is that? I, I think, think that's, that's just awesome, man. such a lovely kind of like, we've had, can I just say, we've had dogs at every element. <laughs> so we started have. off at the top with, it was raining cats and dogs. Yes, yes. In, you know, precipitation. Um, we had we had the, the litter picking dog in, in Clydebank yep. in Scotland. We talked about dogs, you know, being, being useful. Being taken by predators. Gabby mentioned that. Yeah. 
absolutely. And we also talked about, we were talking about wolves and the introduction of wolves. It's been a very canine-heavy um, episode. The ancestor of all the dogs. Um, maybe dogs are the global solution to everything. But no, this is a really gorgeous example of when you, yeah. you actually, you have, you know, people who are working with communities carefully and gently and understanding um, to, you know, to these the people wanted the dogs and they're finding yeah. them their really useful way of keeping cheetahs away. Yeah. And I think um, to, to also have that reduced by 80, like 85, 85% of their farmers that have livestock garden dogs have had zero conflicts. I think it's incredible. Isn't that lovely? That's amazing. What a great solution. Yeah. And instead of having like, you know, government mandated policies forced yeah. upon them, there's actually a sense of agency and choice. Mm. Um, uh, you know, and you know, this is this is where I I do kind of like you know I'm ultimately cynical about conservation methodology from the West being exported in other places, but don't you know, we know so, you know, it. I I I can huh? Don't we know it? Sorry, um, not sorry, <laughs> but I also credit where credit's due, and let's you know, pointing out success stories, mm, yeah, yeah, um, a bit like the Albatross Task Force. Such beautiful, simple, it's bringing in a totally different conservation story. But, you know, you've got a situation where you have longline trawler fishing, killing thousands and thousands of birds through bycatch. And you just put a damn heavy weight on the string. <laughs> it drops it down the water so the birds can't reach the hooks. Yeah. And then it just reduces bycatch. I it's love a simple, a simple thing. solution. It's a, yeah, simple thing. That and that's just working with fishermen and, and yeah, explaining, exactly. look, here's how you do it. Do you mind doing this? The fishermen never wanted to kill the wildlife in the first place. No. And similarly, you know, people don't want to do it. And it's you're training up these dogs and going, yeah, have a dog. Yeah. And like Gabby said way back in their voice note at the beginning, is working with the communities, having them at the head of that, they often know the simplest solutions. And we're talking about Gabby saying that, who's never met Neville. And then Neville tells us a story about using dogs. And then we've got Jane that has this program of using livestock. So all that interlinks, they've all got to the same point together without ever yeah, talking exactly. to each other. Do you and know what I mean? So. And often when you read reports, so I, you know, I come from a background with environmental policy and mm. you know, so much of the work, like so many kind of IUCN guidelines, or various conservation bits of policy and guidelines have ultimately in like the abstract or the, the executive summary is we need to work with communities on the ground to make sure this is <laughs> again, 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 again. Um, and absolutely we do. And I imagine if we transport that same thing into the UK, if we, if we, if we had a situation where we were going to introduce wolves and we sat down with farmers and we said, look, they're coming back. They're coming back because the public wants them back. And we recognize the importance for controlling deer population, which is blah, 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 blah. How do you want to mitigate this yeah. you know what what systems and policies and funding and we cut in place so you can carry on doing what you do and whether that's you know better fencing or whether that is trained dogs for farmers yeah. although the wolves would just be like nom 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 potentially but i don't know whatever the solution would be um i can imagine you know we could we could shape policies for for ourselves here in the uk because there are solutions but you have to involve people because their opinions matter and their life matters yeah, yeah. and and um yeah it's really important i loved this episode this has been a heavy episode with loads of information thank you all so much for sitting with us for this and we didn't have a single bit of conflict through it either did we we didn't we didn't argue once i held it in i held it in so many times i hate you <laughs> 
<laughs> if you would like to follow us on social media, you can do that into the world pod on Twitter, into the world podcast on Instagram. Again, if you'd like to buy us an uh, instant coffee or a San Miguel, then you can go onto ko-fi.com forward slash into the world pod. Um, anything you can ever give goes back into the, making the show. And if you ever want to get in touch and suggest an episode subject um, or a topic for anything to do with nature room 101 or a bit of positive nature news, just head over to into the world pod at gmail.com, drop us an email or DM us on social media. It's been a pleasure to talk about this. I think we're going to revisit this topic. I think we probably will revisit it. And I'd also like to invite people to have a think about Nature Room 101 for our next episode, where I would like you to let us know what nature smell you don't like. Nature smell? Everybody's oh. got a nature smell where they're like, I absolutely hate it. Shall I share mine? Yes. Himalayan balsam. <laughs> Genuinely makes me vomit. That's so niche. Uh, I don't like it. I can't stand it. It's horrible. So wherever you've got a lot of it, it's not just that I don't, I think it's not a nice smell. There's like a physical body reaction I have to it. What smell can get in room 101? Yeah. And it's got to be nature. Don't just be throwing dog (laughs) in. Yeah. You can't throw dog (laughs) in. Don't throw dog (laughs) Or like Lynx Africa, just because it's got like a wildlife (laughs) connection. Don't be slagging off Lynx Africa. (laughs) Do you wear it? No, no, because I'm not 12 in the 90s. <laughs> is it still a thing? I don't, I don't, is it still a thing? It will be a thing. Also get in touch and let us know if Lynx Africa is still a yeah, thing. Please. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks, nerds. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Into the Wild. You can find us on social media at Into the Wild Pod for Twitter and at Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to let us know your thing to go into Nature Room 101 or share a topic for Nadia and I to cover on the show, you can email us at intothewildpod at gmail.com.